Welcome to Education Talks, I'm David Burke. Kate Kahn has been described as a combat chalky. For the past 22 years, she has worked in different educational capacities and for a wide range of organisations, from remote Australian Indigenous schools to international schools, as well as different armed forces worldwide, her teaching experience is extensive. Kate's current role at Namsol University sees her focus on the International Baccalaureate and Teacher Training and Development. Well, Kate, hello and welcome to Education Talks. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. So where are you at the moment? Uh, we're currently living in Korea in a smallish village around about an hour and a half south of Seoul. So I'm in Seoul at the moment. Uh, it is uh, quite, uh, well, It's I could say it's it's cold, but it's uh, actually not too bad at the moment, isn't it? It's around about five degrees or so, which is pretty good for this time of year. Yeah, we're just on the end of, of quite a nice winter, a little bit milder than it was last year, but um, it has that lovely, soft, fluffy snow that, that settles quite nicely. Very good. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your career pathway that led to where you are today? Uh, yes. So um, my career hasn't been a very standard or, or straight line version of a teaching career. So I started off actually studying arts at the University of Sydney and then kind of used my time there to work out what my strengths and interests were, I guess. And then at the end of that degree, I moved to Melbourne to Deakin and I undertook a postgraduate Bachelor of Education. And what was really nice about that degree was it actually qualified me to teach both primary and secondary. So when I did the teaching practicums in my first year for primary, I'd come away saying, wow, this is amazing. This is 100% what I want to do, not even going to consider secondary. Then, of course, in my second year, I did the practicums in a number of different secondary schools and I came away going, wow, this is amazing. It's 100% what I want to do, uh, not going to consider anything else. And in amongst those practicums, we were also required to spend time at a non-mainstream type of schooling. So I did mine on the Gold Coast and I actually worked in a school that had over 50% of its students registered as being deaf. Uh, when I was younger, I'd done some work at camps for, for children with handicaps or with additional needs. Um, and I'd learned Auslan and was able to sign reasonably well. So again, that practicum really inspired me and I came back from that going, I only want to work with kids with special needs. So that two years that I did at Deakin were uh, really quite life-changing and you'll see as I talk about my career that I actually used a lot of the skills that I gained in those two years. And because it was a post-grad bachelor, over 50% was school-based practicums rather than in the classroom at the university. Uh, whilst I was in Melbourne, I joined the Army Reserve, and again, that will become a little bit relevant later on in my story. So my very first full-time teaching position was actually in the outback um, in a very small Indigenous community called Papanya. So it's about 250k northwest of Alice Springs, just sort of an off, off the path, dirt track leading to Papanya. 
Um, and Papanya, in the time that I was there, was really quite a magical place to be. As a new teacher, I was open to anything and everything. Um, I didn't realise that this was not necessarily what my teaching life would look like for forever. So I was in a class that had all female students because, again, there was the, the cultural issue of teaching older males that might have been a good match for me. So I had an all-female classroom from 7 to, to 15 years old, mixed English ability, um, and, again, very, very traditional in their lifestyle. And whilst I was working at this particular school, I also transferred my Army Reserve work. So I was working uh, as a second lieutenant with Norforce. So between the school and between Norforce, I actually spent a lot of time in the desert learning things like how to track different animals, how to find bush food. Um, and then I sort of brought that quite naturally into the classroom conversations because this is what the kids knew. So when teaching basic subjects like maths or literature, I'd automatically make those connections to what I was learning from the kids and the community and with my Army Reserve work um, and connecting what was happening in the classroom to what was happening in their, their real-life context. I really loved my time at Papanya and I really wasn't that keen to leave. Uh, and the only reason I left was uh, the adjutant who was a, a major in charge of the North Force unit where I was doing a lot of my training, actually recommended that I go to RMC, Duntroon, and look at doing full-time military training. Uh, to me, this was quite an absurd suggestion. Whilst I really enjoyed playing uh, in, in my cams and I really enjoyed the experiences I was having, I wasn't really thinking about them in a soldier kind of context. Uh, however, when he then said to me, yeah, but part of the application means spending four days, all expenses paid at a five-star hotel in Adelaide, considering I was currently living in the middle of a very hot red desert where it was a day's journey on a corrugated dirt track to get into Alice. Uh, the mail came once a fortnight with the flying doctors and it was kind of before we really had internet and email. So I was living in a really isolated community. And so the promise of four days at a five-star hotel in Adelaide was kind of appealing. So because of that, I said, okay, I'll go and I'll do the first round of applications. And as part of the application process, they tested our fitness, which at that stage was not an issue at all for me. Uh, they tested things like our problem-solving skills, our communication skills and so forth, uh, and, and medicals. So made it through, back to the community, and it was now Christmas time. And again, Christmas summer in the Australian outback is magical. Um, everybody spends all of their time outdoors. People sleep outdoors. You can walk around at 9 o'clock at night and hear people playing guitar and singing and, you know, it really had this wonderful feel. So when I then got the call up to say, actually, uh, you've made it through uh, and you can go to RMC and start your training there next year, I turned it down. Um, and the adjutant got on the phone and he said, Kate, there will 
always be a teaching job for you in Australia. Anywhere you want to teach, there's a good chance there'll be a job. You will never, ever, ever get to go and see what you could have done if you'd gone full-time military unless you say yes now. So that was kind of the deciding factor. So I then left this beautiful community at Papunya and I moved to Canberra to the Royal Military Academy. I was a terrible, terrible officer cadet. Um, again, I was there not necessarily for the right reasons. I enjoyed a lot of what I did, especially because I was so good with my fitness, but I'm certainly never somebody that you would want to have lead you into battle or conflict. As I neared the end of my time there, I think that was also something that was recognised by many of the staff. And so they came and they said, instead of doing the standard graduation into the usual course that you would graduate from RMC into, how about you go into the Royal Australian Army Education Corps? Normally, to join the Education Corps, you just do a six to eight week course. So I was coming with nearly a full 18 months of, of training into a core that were mostly just civilians in uniform. So that gave me a huge advantage. I had the education background, but I had a much stronger military background than most other people in that particular call, which then meant that I kind of got some really fun and interesting roles. So one of my jobs was working up in Townsville and working with Indigenous soldiers and assisting again almost with a culture switch into the army with language and, and with basic training. And another role that I did was working at training command at that stage at Mossman in Sydney where we were one of the very first, we probably were the first, to start converting training courses to online training. And this was round about 2000, so this was still a really new idea. But we found that bringing soldiers into, into training establishments for six to eight weeks at a time to train them for promotion and so forth was taking them away from their units, their families, their sports. So it was much more effective for us to create a training package at that stage on CDs. These days it would be online. They would work through the training package at their own unit in their own time. And then we brought them in and we did, you know, intensive testing for maybe two weeks. So we at the Australian Army were kind of the first to do that. Uh, then the British Army looked at it. The American Army started looking into it. And as we saw, most education establishments now have, have similar versions for, for many of their courses. Having, having done... Uh, the different jobs that I did with the Australian Army, I was lucky enough to get an exchange to the British Army, exercise long look, and whilst over there, was able to use a lot of my English language training skills that I had sort of developed during my time at Papunya. So I was working at the Gurkha language wing, um, and the Gurkhas are the, the Nepalese soldiers that work with the British Army. So whilst with them, they deployed to Bosnia, and so they took me with them. So, again, my, my whole knowledge and understanding of the Army and how the Army worked until then had been very limited to the Australian and a little bit of the British. 
In Bosnia, I was actually stationed at a major NATO uh, camp where I was interacting with soldiers throughout NATO. And whilst I was there, September 11 occurred, which meant that I, I didn't leave when I was meant to, so I spent longer than intended. Uh, and so people looked for ways to, to use me and my skills. And I found myself doing things like giving briefings at the local primary schools in Bosnia about mine awareness and working with a person from Dental Corps who was talking about, you know, teeth and health awareness. So I actually had the opportunity to spend quite a lot of time off base working with civilians as I did on base. And through that, my uh, Serbo-Croat language skills improved a little bit as well. Because I'd enjoyed that, I was then given the option to transfer to the British Army. When I say transfer, it, it wasn't a straight transfer. That's a whole other complex story. But eventually um, I moved across to the British Army and one of my early postings was to DSL, the Defence School of Languages. Um, and whilst there, again, I was using those English language skills but teaching military English to soldiers from around the world. And the advantage that that gave me, I think having, again, a slightly different approach to being an officer in the military to what many of the officers around me had, um, it meant that I maybe stood out a little bit more, was a little bit more culturally aware um, and perhaps a little bit more relaxed about some of the things that the British were quite pedantic about. And it meant that when people were needed on secondment to different armies, often I was the one that was requested. So I had a few months working in Finland with the Finnish army, uh, six, six or so months in Slovakia, setting up the NATO staff uh, headquarters um, and a bit of time in, in a few sort of other countries like Cyprus and so forth. Then it kind of came time to settle down, think about a family. So I went back to teaching and the school that I taught at in the UK was a special needs school with a high autistic unit, but also a high number of students with hearing impairments. Um, and my role there was initially head of sport and PE. Then we were authorised as a specialist sports college. So I took on that role of director of specialism with the, with the, uh, with the job of embedding uh, sport and leadership across all of the subject areas within the school. Um, then we made a move to Germany. So I had two young children by this age. We made a move to Germany and I was working in the, the schools that the British Army have on their camps there and also working part-time at Paderborn University where I was teaching English to fourth-year engineering students. So, again, my vocab and my knowledge and understanding of engineering and engineering technical language improved out of sight. Uh, and I also had the opportunity to work on some of my German language skills. And my daughter was at this stage very young but attending a German kindergarten, a Waldkindergarten, so her skills were developing alongside mine. Then it was time to return to Australia. So as we moved back to Australia, um, I stepped into a school that was applying for the first time for the IB. Um, and with my international background and with my wealth of different sort of training establishments that I'd worked in, 
I was given the opportunity to set up the Language A literature course and then later on work within the psychology department for, for the IB diploma program at Canberra Grammar School in Canberra. So, Kate, uh, you're back in Australia. What was it that brought you to Korea? Uh, originally, we had planned to take long service leave for, for six months and kind of do a bit of a, a world tour, the children and I. And then, of course, COVID appeared. And because COVID, um, the school I was teaching at was a boarding school, so COVID also meant that a lot of the students were stuck and unable to go back to their countries and, and visit their parents. So I was trying to find ways to, um, to empathise, that's not the word, but to, to have something in common with the kids. So I would start to listen to the music that they introduced me to um, and for many of them that came from places like Korea, Vietnam and so forth, they were really into the K-pop. So I started listening to some of the K-pop, expanded my knowledge outside of BTS uh, and I also started watching some of the K-dramas and the Thai dramas that the kids would recommend. And I did it initially for the students so that we would have that common talking point but at the same time, I found myself getting sucked into that little world of, especially with the dramas, wanting to know a little bit more about this particular culture that these dramas were supposedly representing. So when a job opportunity for Korea did pop up, um, I didn't take it too seriously initially, but when I realised that the requirements were looking for things like somebody with a master's in either ESL or international education, and at this stage, I had two masters, one in each. They were looking for somebody who had a strong IB background and had also been part of the IB Educator Network. They were looking for somebody who had a background in training design and development, which is something that I spent most of my army career focusing on with different educational programs. And so it actually had an unusual list of things that not too many people would have been able to tick the boxes for. So it was a really nice opportunity for me to go, actually, this very eclectic skill set that I've gathered over my time teaching could actually fit all together into one job. And so I applied um, and the job was uh, introducing the IB to Korean teachers and training Korean teachers for how they might set that up in their local state schools. So that's how I ended up here. And it was the Army that provided all these great opportunities and that came from being originally in the Army Reserve. But what was it that made you decide to join the Army Reserve in the first place? So uh, my dad is, my dad's a history teacher and his favourite phrase was, all things in moderation. And for as long as I could remember, I would turn around and go, no, 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 Dad, all things to the extreme. Uh, and again, if you look back at my, my story, you'll see that that's kind of how it's been. So I think my approach to life has been opt-in rather than opt-out. And I guess joining the Army Reserve was a little bit the same. So I had a flatmate who was in the Artillery Corps and I kind of thought it was cool the way he went off once a week and did all of this training. I also thought it was kind of cool the way that you got paid to play. And so 
I kind of joined up without any expectations or any, you know, I've got to do this and be the best. But what I found was not only was I mixing with people in a reserve context from all backgrounds of education, social, culture, but I was also given a little bit of structure to be able to place skill sets that I was learning into. So, yeah, it wasn't join the army and see the world initially, but that was certainly um, where where my army journey did end up leading me. So you're now working at Namsol University. Um, what are some of the things that you're currently working on? So I've got a range of things. We, we were the first university to introduce the program that I run, which is the IB Educator Certificate in Teaching and Learning. There are now four other universities that offer that program. Um, and originally, Korea started just with the DP, with the high school focus. And they very quickly learned that they were going from one extreme system to another. So they then started saying, maybe we should introduce it first at that elementary primary school level, then those middle years, then high school. So one of the major projects that I had was working out how we introduced the MYP for the middle years and the PYP for students at that primary elementary level. So starting in two weeks' time, we will be running the first program in all of Korea that actually has all three of those built into our training program. And we have teachers on the course that have a background in you know, our younger students in that elementary primary school age group through to our students finishing high school. So that's kind of the main project that I've been working on is establishing and setting up that course. Working with the IB, I'm still an examiner for some of my key IB subjects. And I've actually in the middle of discussions with the IB for how we create what's called an SBS, a school-based syllabus, so that we can introduce a subject called Indigenous Perspectives and have the opportunity for students around the world to study the Indigenous heritage of their country, um, which is something that, that is a bit of a gap in the IB at the moment. And I guess my fun project is also working with the ROTC, which is the uh, Korean Officer Cadet Army Corps based at the university. So that's where I started in the reserves at Melbourne University Regiment. And so now I'm spending time with the equivalent here at my university in Korea, doing a bit of English language teaching, but also talking about differences between Korean military, Australian and British, just using my personal experience as we fill those gaps as well. Can I ask what are those differences? What are some of the differences between uh, the Australian, Korean and British armies? Just so curious. the Korean, Korean is, is quite modelled in many ways on the American um, and many things in Korea are modelled on American approaches to things. So you can definitely see that influence here. And I guess with the Korean War in the early 1950s, Australia did play a major role but the Americans were there from start to finish um, and the Americans are still here now with a strong military presence. So it's interesting looking at the, the history of the Korean military from the 1950s to now and just seeing how they've adapted some of their ranks from their very military one, less so, um, and they're now sort of as a smaller army more like Australian 
they're now sort of downsizing the the extreme differences between some of the ranks. Um, it's also worth noting as well that all Korean males between the ages of 18 and I think 28 are required to do mandatory military service of between a year and a half and two years. So comparing that to when we had our birthday ballot for Vietnam um, and comparing how the Australian Army works now to, to the Korean Army approach, you can actually see there are times where we have crossed, but we're now quite different. And uh, how long have you been here in, in Korea? How many years? Coming up to our 18 months. So um, feels like we've done a lot in the time that yeah. we've been here. When we first arrived, our first week in Korea, we met the president, uh, President Moon Jae-in, and we went to the Blue House. And my daughter, actually, my 14-year-old, gave a speech at the Blue House in front of the president and all the dignitaries that was viewed nation, you know, aired nationwide, um, talking about her great-grandfather and his role in the Korean War. So, again, my education, my military, Korea, Australia, it's all kind of bundled into the last 18 months that we've had here. So you're living and working in Korea and you're outside of uh, Seoul. You're a little mm. bit south. Um, what, I guess what are the biggest uh, challenges for you, but also what are some of the things that you enjoy the most? Yeah, we do. We do seem to be very unusual not wanting to live in one of the bigger cities like Seoul or Daegu or Busan. So we really are in a very small village. We arrived in the middle of COVID, so we were the only white faces, the only obvious foreigners in the village. Uh, my daughter goes to the local middle school here. And again, on introduction, the head teacher proudly told us that she was the first white child to attend school. So her challenges, she's such an IB child, her challenge was very much, can you learn the language? Can you fit into the culture? Can you cope with school life? Can you make friends? And she rose to all of those challenges, not easily, but without feeling like there were many obstacles on the way. Uh, and she's now about to finish her last year of middle school and she's now asking, is there a way she can stay for high school? So that's a pretty huge tribute to Korean teachers um, mm. to be a and to the Korean students to be able to make a child that is very different and, and struggling with language and culture to make her feel like she fits in so much she wants to stay. Um, and that's, you know, that's unusual anywhere in the world to find a community, I think, that can embrace a family like that and really look out for them. So I think that's one of the things I love the most. My language is not great, but my listening skills are not too bad. So I often actually hear people saying, ah, oh, that's so-and-so's mum. Don't, don't talk to her. She can't speak the language yet. But her daughter did this or I saw her doing that. So it's kind of nice to hear people talk about us because it's usually in a nice way. Oh, that's very good. For me, the biggest um, struggle has the language. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it sounds like you're in a great community. Um, so, now, Kate, if people wanted to get in touch with you, uh, how can they go about doing that? 
Um, I am on LinkedIn, so uh, I'm fairly easy to find formally on LinkedIn if you just type in Kate Khan, C-A-I-T-E, K-H-A-N. And I guess that's the best start point because that way you can message me or you can backtrack through, through some of the different things that I've done. So an opportunity to connect with people in Korea particularly. We were supposed to meet up uh, today, uh, a little bit of a frog in my throat and been uh, inside for the past couple of days. But uh, no, Kate, it's been great uh, to to connect and have the discussion. And uh, thank you so much for being on Education Talks. Thank you so much for the invite. I really enjoyed it. Education Talks is an EdEvents production for the EdEvents community. You can keep up to date with the development of the community by registering on the website at ed.events.